0: I'm Adam Sifu.
1: And I'm Scott Stern.
0: And we're back with Episode 6 of the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. Each episode is divided into four parts. We begin each episode with a case unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptom. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting and privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites.
1: Well, our topic this week is GI bleeding. Adam, you are the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me?
0: I do, and I am feeling very expert-like. Okay. So this patient is a 65-year-old man who presents without any past medical history um, with new exertional chest pain. He noticed a dull aching um, pain in his chest and shortness of breath with the brisk walk that he's accustomed to doing every morning. The symptoms have been present for about four weeks. He says they were barely noticeable at first, but now have become severe enough to lead us to lead him to this visit. He otherwise feels actually completely well. His past medical history is unremarkable. I've been seeing this guy for 10, 15 years. Um, interestingly, he had an EKG stress test a year before this visit as part of a quote-unquote executive physical um, that he was sent to from his job. Um, his review systems were normal. He reported no change in bowel habits. He reported no change in appetite, no nausea, vomiting. Um, the only thing on his physical exam that was remarkable was that just kind of looking over his data from a year ago is he'd lost about 10 pounds. Um, he, had not, he hadn't actually noticed this. He's a little bit of a heavy guy, so maybe not surprising. Um, but it was documented from the weight that I had taken at a visit um, a year ago. Um, so that's... That's the case.
1: Well, that's interesting because we're on GI bleeding and this guy's coming in with chest pain. So I have to admit, um, we need to put those two together. Clearly, the first thing that's going to be on your differential for this fellow would be some sort of ischemic heart disease because he's a 65-year-old man and whether he has risk factors or not, he's in a high-risk group. He did, you say, have a, a stress test a year ago uh, that I presume was normal, uh, but that doesn't exclude that possibility. Um, Given the fact that we're uh, GI bleeding, we do rarely see people who present with demand ischemia when they get anemic enough that they present with chest pain and shortness of breath when they exert themselves. And so it is reasonable in patients who have chest pain to obtain a CBC in addition to the rest of your workup, but probably the initial start here would be to get a CBC and an EKG and, you know, unless there's something really remarkable about the CBC, consider stressing them again.
0: Good, good. Sounds good. Um, So I'll just maybe give you the start here before we break. Um, My thinking was really essentially the same. I guess maybe the one thing that I didn't tell you is that because he has an excellent primary care physician, he had a colonoscopy done at 60 five years before, which was completely normal. And they had recommended a repeat colonoscopy uh, when he was seven um I actually got an EKG in the room uh which was normal I had one which I don't even know why he had it done about 10 years before um and that was unremarkable and you are right his um EKG stress test at this executive physical um I did have the results of that too and that was normal um I drew labs on the guy I sent him home sort of a little bit cautiously um uh, but um Uh, When those came back, uh, his hemoglobin was 7.5. And I had a CBC also from three, four, five years before, which was completely normal. Um, So this was obviously something new for him. His MCV on that was 62, 63, something remarkably low. Um,
1: Well, that's really interesting. So with that MCV and that hemoglobin, you'd almost be certain that this is an iron deficiency anemia, especially given a normal prior hemoglobin. Without that data, you could wonder about thalassemia, but obviously if it's new, that's not the case. So now we have a patient who probably is having demand ischemia and we put that on the back burner briefly while we try to figure out why he has what's really an iron deficiency anemia without a lot of other clear symptoms. He did have a negative colonoscopy five years ago. It makes an occult colon cancer less likely. He could still be bleeding from the colon. Uh, we don't know, but it would make a cancer less likely. Um, and it could be coming from an upper source. Uh, you know, ulcers, gastric carcinomas, esophageal carcinomas all can present like this. Um, you haven't mentioned that he's a drinker. Um, alcoholism can present with varices, but that typically presents as brisk breeding, Risk bleeding, rather than occult low-grade iron deficiency anemia. So um, it's pretty interesting story, and he would, you know, need a careful evaluation. i want to know about NSAIDs because patients often take NSAIDs and can have ulcers without pain. Uh, shocking enough, and can bleed without pain. And so I'd want to ask him about aspirin, Advil, Motrin, ibuprofen, and every single NSAID I could think of, and also just what he takes for pain, because this wouldn't be an unusual story for an ulcer.
0: First of all, I think alcohol use has been associated with brisk breeding in the past. (laughs) (laughs) But um, aside from that, your your points are well taken, and and interestingly, he had started uh, a baby aspirin every day a year ago after his executive physical, um, which made me irritated, um, given that with our current evidence, there was clearly absolutely no reason for that. Um, just before we move on to the next part, I'll ask you to put your nickel down. Um, where would you begin his evaluation? And what do you think? What do you think is bleeding here?
1: Well it is it is really quite a guess with the data that we have. So uh normally had he not had the colonoscopy 5 years ago I would start with the colon cuz colon cancer is more common than soft, you know, than gastric cancer in the United States and the west. Um I think given the negative colon colonoscopy in the past I'd probably start with the stomach and start with an endoscopy. Although, you know, frankly, whichever one you start with if you don't get an answer, you're going to flip the patient upside down and do the other side. But I guess I'll put my nickel on ulcer.
0: Okay. Does the weight loss factor into that at all?
1: It does, actually. So the the causes of GI bleeding that can cause weight loss do include ulcers. A, a significant portion of people with ulcers do present with weight loss, and it's actually in the workup for unexplained uh, weight loss to consider an endoscopy. Um, obviously, the uh, colon cancers can do the same when, without a history of abdominal pain and diarrhea. IBD would be unlikely, to I think, to cause anemia and weight loss. Um uh, you know, a lot of the, it's interesting, a lot of the other causes of occult bleeding like angiodysplasia uh, would be unlikely to cause weight loss. And diverticular bleeding, as you know, doesn't present with microscopic low-grade bleeding, but rather, you know, massive bleeding. So again, that will point me towards upper uh, rather than lower.
0: Okay. I'm just trying to, you know, now that you've already missed the case that the guy's having acute MI, I'm just trying to, you know, get you <laughs> even further <laughs> off the Thanks mark.
1: Thanks very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Adam, why don't you give us uh, some of the five key points about diagnosing GI bleeding to get us started?
0: Okay. So let me start. So, so my first point is um, that in an acute GI bleed, management precedes diagnosis. You know, we're sort of all about diagnosis on this podcast. But, it, but at this time, basically your diagnosis is GI bleed and all the further details can wait. And so when I think about the, the initial management, I think really about four steps. The first is risk stratifying people. You know, how much should I worry about this people? And there are this person and there are all sorts of tools out there. A lot of people will refer to the Glasgow-Blatchford scale for upper GI bleeds. And for lower GI bleeds, the greatest predictors of of severity of bleed or actually of of a poor outcome related to the bleed is the hemoglobin on admission, the age of the patients, abnormal vital signs, and gross blood. Um, Once you risk stratify, you have to prepare. And prepare basically means having good IV access. And that means two large-bore IVs let me just just repeat that, two large-bore IVs. Um, It's important that they're large-bore IVs because if you think about back to, I don't know, you know, college physics, um, you remember that the flow rate um, is equal to the differential in pressure from where the fluids come from, where it's going. Um, That's basically the same for us when you're giving blood, uh, as long as you're not, I guess, squeezing the bag of blood. Um, So it's the change in pressure times pi times the radius of the catheter to the fourth, okay? So that tells you why having a large bore IV is very, very powerful. Every time you decrease the the bore of that IV, you're decreasing the flow by the fourth exponent, right? However you'd say that. Um, And then that's divided by... Eight times the viscosity of the fluid, we can't do a whole lot to change the viscosity of saline or the viscosity of blood, Um, times the length of the catheter, okay? And so that's why we like, you know, short, large-bore peripheral IVs, which are short. If you think about your your central line, central lines are not only not large-bore, but they're very long. So
1: it is kind of weird because we always think of central lines as being the better way to deliver everything. And this is one case where even if you had a central line, you'd be better off putting it in a large peripheral line. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. That's really surprising. Um, so after you've, you've risk stratified and prepared, the next thing is resuscitation, okay? And you're going to start with fluids, you're going to start with fluids with some solutes, so um, lactated ringers or, um, or normal saline, and then you're going to move on to blood. Uh, when you give blood, maybe is a little bit controversial or not exactly clear, but in general. If someone's lost a lot of blood, you give them blood. Um, so people will say 30% blood loss, hard to measure. If the person's bleeding, plus they're tachycardic, hypotensive, tachypneic, um, if their urine output is down, those people need blood. If you've already given two liters of fluid and they're not Volume replete at that time, give them blood, and if they come in bleeding and their hemoglobin is less than nine, give them blood. Um, we may underdo that these days because there's pretty good data, right, that if someone's um, that we can hold off on transfusions until someone's hemoglobin get bo- gets below seven, but that's not true if they're actively bleeding.
1: That's really important. I do think right now everyone tends to think that no one needs blood, and it's yeah. just a different animal if yeah. someone's hemorrhaging in front a- of
0: you. Absolutely true. Um, And then the last one in this first point is is to think about if there are initial sort of specific empiric therapies, which you should throw out there. Um, So is the patient anticoagulated? Do you need to reverse anticoagulation? Is this very likely to be an ulcer, in which case you'd want to give them a PPI? Is this likely to be an esophageal variceal bleed, um, where you'd want to give them octreotide? Um, my second point is to differentiate upper from lower bleeds. This is not always possible, but sometimes it is. Um, so take a history. Is this someone who's had previous diverticular bleeds in the past or previous variceal bleeds? As you mentioned, Scott, are they on NSAIDs? Are they a drinker? Do they have vascular disease, right, where they may be bleeding from uh, ischemic colitis? Have they had pelvic irradiation in the past? Are they febrile? You know, is this part of an illness where maybe they've got... Um, um, Uh, infectious colitis? Or do they have the classic history of, you know, like, I went out, I drank last night, I threw up two times, and on the third time, all of a sudden, blood started coming. Um, uh, where you would think about a Mallory Weiss tear. Thank you very much. <laughs> have you um, have you have you jump in there while I was having a TIA and couldn't remember the name? Um, and then there's some clinical features, right? So obviously, if someone's throwing up blood, it's from above. is um, suggestive of an upper bleed, and hematemesis for the most part is uh, suggestive of a lower. Bleed.
1: So just so if I understand you correctly, your profound comment was if they're throwing the blood, it's from above. Yes. Okay,
0: just want to make sure. Um, third key point, um, in acute bleeding, we usually start with an EGD rather than a colonoscopy if we really don't know where it's coming from. And that's, be, be, that's because someone with an acute GI bleed, the people who are at the highest risk are going to bleed from an upper source, either peptic ulcer disease, you know, eroding into a vessel or an esophageal bleed. It's very unusual for someone to exsanguinate from a lower GI source.
1: Right, and I have seen people, and I'm sure you have too, who bled to death from yeah. varices. Yeah,
0: and I think we'll we'll probably underline that a few times right. during this is take GI bleeding seriously. There we go. Um, fourth key point and this is big as as an outpatient general internist, which I think both Scott and I consider ourselves first and foremost, is never, ever, ever ignore iron deficiency. Um, um, A lot of people get into trouble with saying, oh, iron deficiency anemia, the treatment for that is iron. You know, no. Um, Yes, the person should be on iron, you know, oral, IV iron, whatever, but you have to figure out a cause. And so never, ever, ever just replete iron. Um, On the other hand, make sure that when you um, have someone who's got an iron deficiency anemia, that you don't go GI bleed and close your mind otherwise, right? There are people who actually have iron deficiency anemia from other causes, celiac disease, um, um, just poor iron intake, and it's worth thinking about those things.
1: I like to say that if you... Give people iron who are older adults who aren't menstruating without thinking about the cause of iron deficiency, <laughs> you should just write out a check to the opposing attorneys. You sign and they can put out how many zeros they want on that because That's you can't defend it.
0: Give the patient the blank check with their prescription for iron. Right. Right? Um, and my fifth and final key point is maybe something that I already says is just don't get lackadaisical about GI bleeds. Um, when I was was resident, and I know my residents now, when, you know, they present cases to me kind of the night before I come in, just give me one-liners, it's often, oh, and the last one is a 65-year-old with a GI bleed. Um, and it's just like, here's an easy admission. You know, this is someone who's going to come in. They're going to get scoped tomorrow. They'll go home the next day. And that's great. That's an easy one. We don't have to think about it. And for the most part, that's true. But occasionally, you're going to have someone just do terribly. Um, and when I say don't get lackadaisical, it's that think about it, be concerned about the person, and make sure you have those two large large-bore IVs. Because when the person is exsanguining, you don't want to walk in there and find out that they have a 22-gauge IV hanging out of their thumb or something, because you don't want to be scrounging for good venous access at the point where the person's bleeding.
1: Right, because I know once they're depleted, you can't find the veins to put it in.
0: Great point, great point. And when was the last time you put in an interosseous line or something,
1: right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness, I get chest pain. All right, well, that's terrific. Do you want to, let's go back to our case, and uh, can you give us some follow-up on what happened?
0: Sure. Um, So I call this guy back. I tell him he's incredibly anemic, and that's probably the cause of his chest pain. And I have to decide um, what my first test is. Scott, you suggested... An EGD. An EGD. And I did start with an EGD on the guy, and he had a large um, ulcer with a visible vessel, actually. Um, Amazing. He was not bleeding at the time, um, but the gastroenterologist who scoped him said, you know, well, there's your answer. Um, Stopped his aspirin, put him on a PPI. Um, uh, Biopsies were done at the time, both for um, gastric cancer and for H. pylori, those were negative. Um, we actually re-scoped the guy six weeks later because the gastroenterologist was concerned enough about the size of his ulcer, even despite that negative biopsy that wanted to make sure that it healed, make sure there wasn't a cancer there. It was biopsied again at that point. It was normal. That was probably overkill. Um, and the guy actually just on oral iron came up nicely. Chest pain was gone. Um, Actually, within a week, um, and I'm trying to think back. I'm pretty sure I did not transfuse this guy, which, as I think back on it, maybe was kind of gutsy.
1: Yeah, I might have, especially with the chest pain.
0: Right? Yeah, especially with the chest pain. So, let me ask you: once he was better, and this is a real question, uh, would you have stressed? So, he's better. He's actually back to his normal exercise. He's feeling fine. Um, would you stress him at that point?
1: Well. So as you've mentioned in another podcast, I'm kind of a pathological overtester. Yeah. I think you can easily make the argument not to stress him because he's now asymptomatic and yeah. he probably had demand ischemia. Yeah. And so at best, you're going to uncover um, atherosclerotic disease that's not currently symptomatic. Yeah. So you could make the rational argument not to do it. Yeah. I probably, knowing my own personal biases and terrors, would probably have done it. But I think the rational approach would be to say yeah. it's reasonable not to. Yeah. What did you
0: do? I, I did not do it, and I think had I told you about the case at the time, and you said to do it, I would have scoffed at you. Probably, it. Um, but I agree it was it was sort of a tough call. I got I got to actually look up this case now because. Reading this and going over it, I, I think I probably should have transfused him, and I hope I did. Maybe maybe we'll get back with the answer to that on a future podcast. All
1: right, to be continued. All right, so let's go on now and talk about some fingerprints, common misconceptions, our favorite pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, do you want to give us some fingerprints for GI bleeding?
0: Okay, my first fingerprint is one of those ones that is just going to shock everybody listening here. <laughs> the presence of clots in the stool, blood clots in the school, stool, has a likelihood ratio of 14 for a lower GI bleed. So if you see blood clots in the stool, that person is bleeding from below the ligament of trites.
1: And what if you see blood clots in the school? What does that
0: mean? <laughs> that means everybody should go home and do school on Zoom for the rest of the year.
1: <laughs> All right. So my first fingerprint is, on the other hand, black stools um, and or... Blood or coffee grounds, when people vomit or on NG aspirate, is highly suggestive of an upper GI bleed with likelihood ratios of over 10, of 25 for melanic stools. So that's really helpful. Black tarry stools really focuses you on the upper pathology, as of course does throwing up blood and coffee grounds. Okay. All right, common misconceptions.
0: Okay. Um, So my first uh, misconception here is that in occult GI bleeding, so much like our case here, a colonoscopy is all you need. Um, So there was a time actually that we sort of said, you know, iron deficiency, anemia, occult GI bleeding, uh, just do a colon and only go beyond that if you don't find anything on the colon. Most experts nowadays and most guidelines actually recommend an EGD after a colonoscopy um, for a patient with heme positive stools and iron deficiency anemia. Now, of course, if you find you know, an obstructing colon cancer, that's not necessary. But the fact is, most of the things that you're going to find on a colonoscopy, You know, small patch of NSAID-related colitis, polyps, and diverticuli. That's not a definitive cause of an iron deficiency anemia.
1: I think that's really a good point. It'd be easy to stop when you find a polyp. And everybody has polyps, basically, right? right? That's helpful. Uh, Well, my common misconception, uh, and I see this uh, not infrequently, is that a normal hematocrit on presentation rules out a significant hemorrhage. And that's just crazy. I mean, when people bleed, they bleed whole blood. And what's left behind in their vasculature is whole blood of the same concentration as before until you dilute it with IV fluids or PO fluids. So when you're acutely bleeding, if you were shot, stabbed, or have a massive GI bleed, your hematocrit is the same for a while, and so we can't use that to judge severity.
0: Yeah, and that's actually been supported. I mean, you know this with sort of incredible studies. Oh, really? um, so there are. This is back to uh, to Vietnam where they had people with with you know. Um, penetrating trauma and blood loss, and you know, first blood counts on those people were normal. Um, Makes and, total sense. Absolutely.
1: Right. Um, All right. So pet
0: peeves. You okay. have any? Oh, of course, I've got oh, pet peeves. On. This first one is going to make me sound like a complete and utter nut. Um, so my pet peeve is that um, people often think that patients are expert diagnosticians, and that's the case for a lot of things. Um, And and maybe as an aside, you know, I often ask people, what do you think is going on, especially when I'm confused about a diagnosis because patients often have something to add. But when patients tell you that they have hemorrhoids, you should ignore what they say. And that's especially the case when they say, you know, I've got some blood that I'm seeing in the toilet. It's from my hemorrhoids, okay? Patients don't know what they're talking about in this mode. There's almost no way for a patient to actively examine their bottom, right? Um, And most people, anything that's going wrong with their sort of anal rectal area says it's hemorrhoids because they've watched, you know, Preparation H commercials for, I don't know, two generations. Um, So when you're seeing that person, you gotta look. Um, You gotta look at the outside. You should probably do an anoscopy in the office um, to see this. And there's a really key study which underlines this, which I, I I just always talk to people about. It's a wonderful study. Um, which looked at 201 patients um, from a va who came to the doctor for an unrelated complaint they had all these people fill fill out uh, review systems or written review of systems and any of them who said that they were having system symptoms consistent with rectal bleeding they tortured the poor people and they worked them up to the end to find out what was going on And what was amazing is that of these 201 people who were having rectal bleeding, but not severe enough to actually tell the doctor about, 24% of them had what they considered serious disease, a polyp, 13%, colon cancer, 6.5%, IBD, and 4%. Um, the people who were at the highest risk, not surprisingly, were older people, people who had a very short history of bleeding, and people who actually saw blood mixed with the stool as opposed to just blood on the toilet paper. Um, importantly, they found no cancers in patients under 50. Small sample, 200 patients, but no cancers in patients under 50. And this thing which, which might undermine my duanoscopy is that in six of the 37 patients who had a clear source of anal bleeding, so hemorrhoids that you could see either externally or on anoscopy, those people also had polyps or cancer further up in the colon.
1: That's pretty scary. Yeah. So the moral of the story is it's better to be under 50 than over 50.
0: (laughs) One of those things which none of us ever realized before. Um, Yeah, for me, what I take away from this is that if someone complains to me, um, 45 and above, maybe of any sort of rectal bleeding, I don't care, you know, I'll take a history, but they're getting a colonoscopy, no matter what. And even people younger than that, who I'm really going to you know, work to get a good look, do a good anoscopy, try to give them good therapy for their hemorrhoids or their fissure or whatever you know I think is going on. I'm still going to keep those people on a pretty close leash. And if it sounds like, ah, this didn't get better with with therapy, i'm I'm going to look.
1: I mean, the only way you're going to go wrong is not to look, frankly.
0: exactly, exactly, right. exactly.
1: Okay, so a pet peeve of mine is when it comes to NSAIDs, I often hear in a patient who comes in with GI bleeding in the hospital that they're not taking NSAIDs, and yet when I go in and take a careful history, I find that, in fact, they are. So a good NSAID history is not, are you taking NSAIDs? (laughs) Um, But rather, I go through every over-the-counter NSAID I could think of. I do remember aspirin, and then I literally ask them, what do they take for pain at all, Um, and so that I can uncover the NSAIDs that everyone says they're not taking.
0: That's a great point. I have actually documented notes that I asked the patient, you know, if they're taking NSAIDs and recognize that that's a bad thing to do. Um, I, I've been burnt, actually, on people who take, uh, you know, an Advil before bed. And I'm like, what is that all about? But they're like, oh, you know, it helps me sleep. because right, you know, my joints. Too. And um And that's an easy thing to to miss. Um, uh, I got one last pet peeve. Okay, go ahead. And this is the... Not all anemia is iron deficiency anemia. It's like not all AKI is ATN. Um, GI evaluation is absolutely a part of most iron deficiency anemia uh, iron deficiency anemia, but GI evaluation is not a part of a uh, part of other kinds of anemia, right? So if you think someone has thalassemia, you know what? A colonoscopy is not going to help make the diagnosis.
1: Probably won't help them feel better either. <laughs> Just saying. Just want to be out there.
0: It will help the gastroenterologist. It
1: then. will help the gastroenterologist. Okay. So our last section's on clinical pearls. Adam, why don't you start us off?
0: Okay, so, so my clinical prologue is, is a little, is a little bit of data, um, which is sort of interesting. Um, so this is people, uh, who come in with a GI bleed. Um, so 90 to 90% of bleeding, um, will be diagnosed on an EGD or colonoscopy. And right, this is what we think. Most bleeding is either upper GI bleeds, all the things we've talked about, varices, dual foil, um, peptic ulcer disease, Mallory Weiss. A Mallory Weiss tear, which I should have written down before this this session, Um, or uh, from the colon, colitis of all brands, polyps, cancer, um, uh, diverticuli. Um, Of the 5 to 10% of people not diagnosed, on the EGD or colon, um, the next place to go with them is a small bowel evaluation. And unlike, say, 10, 15 years ago, we're pretty good at evaluating the small bowel now. Uh, and that's that's especially related to capsule endoscopy and to all of the advanced endoscopies that we can do. And so that 5 to 10% that you don't make a diagnosis on EGD or colon, 75% of those patients will have a small bowel um, Uh, Source of their bleeding. So interestingly, that leaves 25% left. It's a small 25%, right? Because it's 25% of the 5 to 10% you didn't make the initial diagnosis on. Um, It turns out that almost all of those people, you can find out what was bleeding just by repeating the colonoscopy or the EGD. Um, And it tends to be things like, Ulcers in hiatal hernias or polyps behind folds in the colon—just things that e- that even a well done endoscopy may miss.
1: So, joy—the only thing worse than one colonoscopy is two colonoscopies.
0: <laughs> it's not just two colonoscopies; it's two colonoscopies, one EGD, and one pill before you get oh your diagnosis. Goodness.
1: All right. So, my last clinical pearl. Are you ready with your bell? I am. I am. Is the importance of orthostatic vital signs? In patients who you think are bleeding. So we've already mentioned that the hemoglobin isn't reliable in acute bleeding. And it's actually important to appreciate that the sitting vital signs can be normal in someone despite massive blood loss. And the only way to document that someone's had massive blood loss is sometimes to stand them up, check their blood pressure and pulse again, don't order it, do it yourself so it actually happens and record and see if there's a big difference. And this, the importance of this was uh, uh, shown in a study in the 1940s. I tried to repeat this, but my IRB was a little uh, reticent. In this study in the 40s, they actually bled the medical students, not of money this time, but actually drew a liter and a half of blood from them to see what would happen to their vital signs. And remarkably, most of the medical students, after they lost a liter and a half of blood, were not hypotensive and were not tachycardic because laying down, they could recruit enough of their venous return to maintain a normal blood pressure and pulse. But when you stood them up, that blood that pooled in the legs was enough to make 97% of them either tachycardic or hypotensive. So when you get someone like this, they're in the emergency room, they've had some bleeding and you say they don't look bad, their vital signs look okay, geez. Just stand them up and check their blood pressure and pulse again, because if you have a big change, you better get on it.
0: I'm going to throw in another pet peeve.
1: Oh, you get an extra. I do. Okay.
0: It's the ordered orthostatic hypertension. Thank you. uh, Orthostatic vitals. You know, it takes, what, by definition, three minutes?
1: (laughs) Actually, there's no good data that you should wait. You can just literally stand them up and take it again.
0: Okay. So let's say 90 seconds. Right. And, you know, there are times that orthostatic vital signs are not, you know, time critical. I think of when we get to talking about hyponatremia, right? right? But a lot of the time, it is really important to know fast. And like putting an order in Epic for orthostatic vital signs, that's like anathema to me.
1: Well, I kind of think that people who are going to do that should get a different job. I mean, if you don't care enough to check the blood pressure again when you stand the first yeah. time, just get another job, be a lawyer, do something else, it's okay.
0: Uh, we may have to delete that. Uh, um, and one other thing, uh, interesting, listening to your last um, clinical pearl then, um, which is, I think, just something that I need to look up, because um, I remember there being data, which we haven't actually talked about at all thus far in this podcast, of the fact that an elevated BUN... Um, is suggestive of an, of an upper GI bleed. Right. Um, and that is true. That is um, supported by data, which is in the symptoms, the diagnosis textbook. Um, and what it is, is that people's BUN is, is higher than you'd expect just based on the, on the volume depletion. And that's because they've basically gotten a high protein meal, right? Right. Um, and I think there's actually um, data on there of infusing dog blood um, into volunteers via an NG tube to see that happen. Ugh. And so these were people who, therefore, were not volume deplete, um, but showed that you can push up the BUN. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. That's a weird study. Yeah, yeah. That may totally be apocryphal. I may be making it up, but man, it's a <laughs> it's, good story. It's fun this. anyway. Yeah. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed um, uh, this episode of the Simpsons Diagnosis podcast. We hope you found it useful as well. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptoms of Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in in print through all the usual places and also available and fully searchable on, Access, on the Access Medicine website, which is available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. It's also now ava- available for download on pretty much any device, uh, like an iPhone. Um, and that's a really excellent version that I know, Scott, you use frequently. I use it all the time.
1: There you go. All right, so thank you.
0: Great, bye-bye. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez.